0: Welcome to Legal Ease Australia, presented by a layman and a lawyer. It's designed to demystify the legal process. It'll answer questions like, how do I buy a property? And what do I do if I get arrested? As well as featuring some of Melbourne's leading legal minds and most compelling cases. This is Legal Ease Australia. Welcome to the fourth episode of Legal Ease Australia podcast. My name's Tom Andronis. I'm the layman uh, in this half of the conversation, and I'll be the one asking the pretty basic questions of our legal guests. Joining me, however, is Mr. John Melia. He's the lawyer in the conversation. He's principal at Melia Lawyers. He's a barrister and a solicitor and a member of the Law Institute of Victoria. Hello, Tom. G'day, John. How are you going? Very good. Thank you, Tom. That's very good. The idea of this podcast is to sort of demystify some of the language and the processes and, and so on that go on around the legal process uh, by asking and answering some pretty basic questions that maybe lay people uh, might be asking and thinking about. Um, Today's topic is prenuptial agreements and binding financial agreements, which is obviously a uh, sensitive topic. Uh, What are some of the things that you think or are hoping we'll cover here?
1: Well, we're hoping to cover and give people a better understanding of what a prenuptial agreement and a binding financial agreement are what's required to prepare a binding one and what happens in the event that someone challenges a prenup or a binding financial agreement.
0: Right. So it's a pretty specialised area of the law, I imagine. So joining us on the line to help enlighten us a little bit is Paul Hannon, who's a family law barrister and mediator at the Victorian Bar. Paul, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Tom. So uh, let's start at the very basics, Paul. What is a prenuptial agreement?
2: So a... Financial agreement, commonly referred to as a binding financial agreement, is a legal agreement or a contract under the Family Law Act. So, commonly in the community, you hear people refer to a prenuptial agreement or prenups. Uh, But what the Family Law Act provides in broad summary is that agreements can be entered into before a marriage, during the marriage uh, and after divorce. And these agreements also apply now to de facto relationships. And similarly, you can have a binding financial agreement entered into by uh, a couple prior to them entering into a de facto relationship, during a uh, de facto relationship, and after the breakdown of a de facto relationship. So binding financial agreements, uh, agreements, contracts then can be entered into by married couples in those circumstances, and de facto couples in those circumstances. I guess the, the main point, Tom and John, is that in the community, perhaps the most well-known description is prenups. But I guess the point is that there's actually three areas where these agreements are applicable. So it's before relationship, during relationship up to divorce, and after the breakdown of a relationship.
0: So before, during and after uh, a relationship, Correct. you can enter into a contract which sets out what? What are the sorts of things that are okay. included in these sorts of agreements?
2: Okay. Well, that, that, that's a good question. I think, John, being a fellow practitioner, you would agree, certainly my experience as a family law barrister for 22 years, uh, the riskiest, if I could put it that way, the riskiest of those categories is what's commonly referred to as the prenuptial agreement or the agreement prior to the relationship because often what you find, Tom, is that in certain cases where a request is made to enter into such an agreement prior to marriage, there are cases where there's, there can be pressure brought from one party to another party uh, and, and often you may have a power imbalance between the uh, the parties. So in in our experience, I'm sure John's had similar experience, of those categories, I would say that the riskiest one would be the prenuptial agreements. In answer to your question, John, about the main types of things that are included in an agreement, uh, agreements can cover property settlements, spousal maintenance. So it's important uh, that the agreements deal with the ownership and entitlement of each of the parties to assets. It's important in our experience that the agreement deals with how income and resources are going to be dealt with, that the agreement sets out what timeframes certain transactions should happen, such as transfers of property, signing of documents and discharges of mortgage. John and I also find that it's important that agreements clearly provide how assets will be valued and provide a mechanism for that in terms of assets and liabilities, for example, capital gains tax, and how certain property of the parties will be dealt with in terms of who will retain a home, uh, how proceeds of sale will be divided and the like. And if the agreement is to deal with the maintenance of a party, how that will be uh, provided and uh, mechanisms for it to be varied or when
0: you are entering into a, a relationship, I imagine I would be affronted if someone asked me to enter into a contract which governed that relationship. If somebody you know asks for a pre-relationship agreement, how often does that request end in a post-relationship agreement?
2: Well, you, you've hit the nail on the head. It, <laughs> it, can, it, can, it can be quite confronting <laughs> for one uh, to be asked to enter into an agreement because, Uh, self-evidently people entering into a long-term relationship be it intended marriage or committed de facto relationship it can be quite off-putting to the other party to receive a request to enter into a financial agreement so it's horses for courses Uh, we give advice Uh, having said that we give very conservative cautious advice particularly in relation to the example that you've given tom where, because what you often find in that situation is not only may it be a surprise to the party to whom the request is being made but in the number of cases you find that <laughs> for example there are some reported cases that are colloquially known as the the ink on the bridesmaid dress cases you know one party might say to the other party look i, I just want to get this agreement signed and it might be like a couple of weeks prior to the intended marriage so In those sorts of situations, it's a very dangerous situation for a client to enter into an agreement because there may be a ground for that agreement to be attacked later on. When I say attacked, what I mean is an application could be made by the party to set that agreement aside because they were effectively put under pressure. So most lawyers uh, would be very careful and considered Advice in any case, but particularly in the circumstance that you've described where you have a request for a prenuptial agreement, because there are so many things, Tom, that you would appreciate that can change. And for all of those reasons, both parties have to obtain proper legal advice that conforms with the requirements of the Family Law Act. So what you find is a lot of lawyers are only prepared to draw up and advise on financial agreements prepared in the relationship or after divorce because they perceive rightly or wrongly, and I'll say perhaps rightly, that the prenuptial category that you've referred to is, is high risk for uh, future claims to be made. Because if you've got to bear in mind that if a, an agreement is entered into, the the riskiest category in our experience is the prenuptial category, If somebody comes back later on and makes an application to set aside an agreement and they succeed, often that's accompanied by a complaint or a case against the solicitor who advised the party in the first instance. So we're very conservative in terms of advice that we give and we need to remind our listeners that financial agreements are private agreements. They're not agreements that are endorsed or approved by the court. Most people resolve their property and spousal maintenance, settlements by way of consent orders. Financial agreements are useful in a number of cases. For example, John and I find that where you might have a later life relationship where adults have uh, built up their own assets and they may have adult children, that might be an example of a pre-relationship or prenuptial agreement that has some merit as they're trying to define what assets they've come into.
1: Yeah, you certainly hit the nail on the head regarding prenuptials. I've had a number of matters over the last 18 years I've been in practice where in most cases the bride-to-be is taken unaware by the prenuptial agreement and the asset protection. And nine times out of ten, they either break up or they don't get married. I've had clients that have called off weddings. It does happen. And and from a practitioner's point of view, it's something we don't like doing because it's open to a lot of risk and it's certainly... There's been, in the last 12 months or more, there's been a lot of litigation against practitioners who've prepared them.
0: So that's a good question. How binding are these agreements and how easily can they be challenged?
2: Paul? That is a good question and John's exactly right because just as I was listening to John then, I was just looking at the recent cases published on the Family Law website and there's just numerous cases where people have challenged agreements. So in answer to your question, Tom, the requirements of a financial agreements under the Family Law Act are the following. Firstly, the agreement must be in writing. Secondly, the agreement must specify what category of agreement it is, i.e. is it a, a before marriage agreement, a during marriage agreement or a post-divorce agreement, and the same with de facto couples. Thirdly, the agreement must be signed by all of the parties. That sounds self-evident, but uh, that's, that's the law. Fourthly, uh, it must be between parties who are contemplating enter into, into a marriage with each other. Parties to a marriage can include one or more other people, uh, and and similarly with a de facto relationship. Fifthly, it must deal with the property, financial resources, and or spousal maintenance of the parties. And importantly, before the agreement was signed, independent legal advice. Uh, must be provided by a legal practitioner to each of the parties about the effect of the agreement and the advantages and disadvantages.
0: So that means that that individual number one has their lawyer, individual number two has their lawyer, and then a third lawyer has to provide independent advice. Is that correct?
2: No, no. No, sorry. You're right on the first two points. The parties must have their own lawyer. Uh, They must get advice on the effect of the agreement and the advantages and disadvantages, and they must be provided with a signed statement by each of their lawyers stating that such advice was provided, and they must provide a copy of that statement to the party or legal practitioner for the other party. Now, and Tom, your question goes to how binding are they and uh, areas of challenge. This is a common fact where a party may seek to either seek a declaration from the court that the agreement is not binding and or it should be set aside because the requirements of legal advice that I've just gone through haven't been set out. Why this is important with financial agreements is unlike consent orders, if John and I are opposed today, Tom, in a case I'm acting for the wife, John's acting for the husband. If we strike a deal in a case and it's a 60-40 division of assets and we present those orders To a judge, and we explain to the judge the background to the settlement, and the judge, he or she, is satisfied that the settlement is just and equitable. Then the orders are made, and that's the end of it. But you've got to remember, people out there need to know that with a financial agreement, it's not approved by a judge. It's not shown to a judge. This is a private agreement. So the Family Law Act provides these requirements that we've just gone through, and the advice requirements. Uh, fairly stringent and it's a high level of advice that has to be provided so it, this will sound surprising to listeners but for example in that same situation I just gave if John is acting for the wife and I'm acting for the husband and if I give very poor level of advice to my client and we're talking about a financial agreement my client later on might go to a new lawyer and say look Paul Smith he only just spent 30 seconds with me, signed off on it. So you have this strange situation where the other spouse is sort of joined at the hip in terms of enforceability uh, as to the adequacy of the advice that's been given. So a lot of lawyers will take the view that these agreements are risky and won't touch them. I tend to take a more middle approach. I think they can be fit for purpose. Uh, another, Another way... John and I have found is very useful. For example, just prior to this, i just settled a case, uh, and we're going to do that by way of consent orders in the family law courts. But we're going, to have a, we're going to have a separate agreement, a financial agreement that's going to essentially provide that the husband and wife will agree to finalise spousal maintenance claims against each other. So we often find that in the court system, People can reach agreement on property with consent orders and can have a an agreement, Tom, that simply says it extinguishes future claims for spousal maintenance against the other. And what spousal maintenance means is uh, a situation where a spouse has to pay a weekly amount to the other spouse. Most people want to tie that up. So we find lawyers like John and I, that's a very practical way of uh, an added to a settlement. And Paul,
1: so. just by way of example, to reinforce what you're saying, I did have a matter where I acted for the husband and drew a prenup or binding financial agreement about 10, 10 years ago. And the wife saw a colleague of mine 10 years ago and had the certificate of advice signed off on both documents. Uh, about a year ago, they decided to split their ways, and the husband had significant assets. She issued proceedings in the federal circuit court claiming that one she never saw the solicitor she saw me two she never witnessed the binding financial agreement and three the solicitor didn't sign it unlucky for her the solicitor i had sent her to had sent her a letter of advice addressed to her had taken a photocopy of her license id when she was at the interview and she had signed the certificate at the back of the document so she had nowhere to go without maintaining her claim for greater assets.
0: But this then probably also takes us to the question of uh, marriages and relationships, you know, whether they're marriage or de facto, they're human malleable things, you know. How do you write a contract that will govern the terms of a relationship? Surely it's a flawed concept from the start, Paul.
2: Well, that's right, and that, that is a very common view and a, a very common reason why a lot of lawyers, I think rightly, are very hesitant if not opposed to the first category, if I can call it that, because so many things can change. Some lawyers and clients try to deal with that by providing formulas for the division of assets and percentages, depending on how many children are born and the like, but in my view, you've just identified a common risk and challenge to pre-relationship, pre-marriage agreements. Uh, And for that reason, I personally don't prepare or advise on those. I just think it's too risky. I'll I'll advise on it. I'll advise don't enter into them (laughs) for (laughs) for the very reason that you've mentioned because hand in hand tends to go with urgency. One party saying, oh, look, I really don't. It's just, you know, my my, my parents really want it. Come on, let's just get it done and go on the honeymoon. And it's just, in our experience, a recipe for disaster.
0: Paul, have you ever had a client come to you or a prospective client saying, I want a prenup, and you've said, listen, mate, I suggest you go away and uh, talk to your wife and sort this out yourselves rather than writing it down as a legal binding agreement?
2: Yeah, I have. Because often... particularly in the uh, situation you just mentioned, you've got an asset or if not a power imbalance, you've got an asset imbalance because the party wanting the agreement obviously is normally in the the position of having stronger financial position. And I often say, I mean, every case is different, obviously, but obviously I often say to clients, look, there's there's another way to, A, you've got to consider the effect of this request on your prospective spouse, B... If what you are trying to do is achieve protection for your assets, so be it. But here are the problems in my experience that often accompany prenuptial agreements or pre-de facto agreements. Maybe a better way to deal with another option is to, let's assume once again, John's for the wife in this pretend fact situation, I'm for the husband. Let's say the husband's got four properties worth a total of $3 million and the wife's got nothing. I might say to my client, look, these are your risk issues if you push the agreement. here Here is a list of 10 cases similar to yours where they've, they've been set aside. Why don't we suggest that we get your assets valued so at least there's some evidence of what you came in with at the start? So that's another practical way to deal with that situation.
0: But doesn't, I know I'm playing absolute devil's advocate here, but doesn't entering into a contract to govern your relationship kind of doom it from the start? You know, you're already thinking that, uh, well, there's a risk that this relationship doesn't last, and I'm going to end up, you know, with less money than I went in with. Isn't that, isn't, it, isn't it just a recipe for disaster? You know, John, don't wouldn't you just say to that person, well, why don't you go have a look at good look at your relationship first?
1: I often do. I often right. say I can't help you. You need to go and see someone else because the conflict in the power position is just too great, and there's already an issue with the relationship before you begin.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Oh. Uh, sounds like a, a fraught area of the law and uh, I hope we've, uh, we've um, added some clarity. I think the takeaway points, John, that I took from this, uh, this conversation were that you can enter into these sort of financial binding agreements before, during and after a relationship. Uh, you can use them to govern things like property, other assets, income, and you can also spell out timeframes within them. Uh, it goes without saying almost, but they must be in writing. Uh, but at the same time, it's a private agreement. It's not been signed off by a judge, and therefore it's open to being challenged. So, this is my subjective opinion, but it sounds to me like it's something you should never touch.
1: It it is, and and Paul, <laughs> what do you what do you think?
2: I certainly uh, concur to the extent of the the prenuptials are very risky uh, in terms of post separation agreements. What I say to my clients and solicitors is the more one-sided it is, the less comfortable I am in the advice I give a client in the event that there is a challenge. So what I say to clients and solicitors in the post-breakdown of a marriage or de facto relationship, I say as far as possible, comply with your disclosure as if you're in court. Make full disclosure, disclose all the assets and liabilities, income and financial resources And as far as possible, consistent with my instructions, set out an agreement that is likely to fall within a range of what a judge would order if we were in court. Because if parties follow that sort of conservative advice, then if the agreement is subject to challenge, then you've obviously built in uh, certain protections. Whereas if you contrast that with a very one-sided Agreement, then in my view, and I think I speak for John as well, uh, then they that can be open to open to challenge.
0: So the last takeaway point there is comply with the terms of the agreement once you've signed it. That's right. Um, That's right. Paul Hannan, uh, family law barrister and mediator at the Victorian Bar. Thank you very much for joining us and for sharing some of your insights.
2: Thanks,
0: Tom. Thanks, John. Um, That brings us to the end of another episode of the Legal Ease Australia podcast. Thank you to you, John, for taking part.
1: Thank you, Tom, and thank you to the Content Engine for all their marvellous help.
0: No worries. That's John Millier there, the principal at Millier Lawyers. Of course, our disclaimer that this is general advice only, and if you require specific advice or assistance, you should contact a legal practitioner. Thank you for joining us uh, for Legal Ease Australia. We hope you learned something,
2: and we look forward to talking to you again soon.